Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We all understand what it is to calibrate something. We calibrate engines and the various parts of engines. We calibrate instruments and tune them to a, a standard. That's what a calibration is. It is the measuring of a test unit against a standard unit. We calibrate things like clocks to make sure that we don't miss our appointments and make sure that we're keeping up with our responsibilities. Well, this morning we come to 1 Corinthians 7, a place where Paul has been attempting to calibrate our understanding of spirituality, to to set a standard over against an erroneous unit and bring us back in line with what God truly demands in His will, trying to calibrate for us the ways that we truly measure spirituality. Because there always is the lurking danger with individuals, there's the lurking danger in various churches, that people would begin to judge and begin to measure spirituality by the wrong standards. Paul talks about this. Colossians chapter 2, he says to the believers in Colossae, do not let someone pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. All these things that people sometimes use to measure spirituality. Paul says, don't let people measure you. Don't let people judge you by those things. Later on in that chapter, he says, if with Christ you've died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is if you still are alive in the world, do you submit yourself to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. But let's face it, this is the reality of where most people live. This is the way that they judge spirituality. It's just a bunch of don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, or in some cases we would say don't wear or don't look this way or, or whatever it might be. They judge your activity or your lack of activity. They judge how many things you participate in, in this uh, church or, or, or you know, this uh, group, or they might judge uh, the amount of money you give or whatever it might be. They'd use all of these things to judge and measure your spirituality which at the end of the day wind up being nothing more than the precepts of men, the standards of men. And people calibrate their measurements for themselves and for others according to that. The problem is, Paul says it very clearly at the end of Colossians, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-made religion but they're of no value in stopping fleshly indulgence. That is to say, you can draw up all these standards you want, you can do all these external things you want, and at the same time, there can be raging in your heart all the passions, desires, and temptations of any person. Because all that external stuff does nothing Paul says, for the indulgence of the flesh. Now, this is really sort of the theological backdrop for 1 Corinthians as we are looking at this passage in depth 
you remember this really kind of uh, erupts out of a question about one of these standards. In chapter 7, verse 1, they had a do not touch standard. Their standard was do not touch a woman. That's what they say. Literally, it's good for a man not to touch a woman or the ESV translates it, not have sexual relations with a woman because that's the implication. But literally, this is what they were saying, that somehow, some way it was more spiritual to not have sexual relations or not even have sexual desires or somehow it was more spiritual to be single All of these things that they had concocted in their mind, they had set up in their mind as measures, as standards of spirituality that Paul has to take on as you go throughout this book. And this isn't the only one. This church church here in Corinth had plenty of these false standards. In the first couple of chapters we saw, it was the amount of wisdom you had, the amount of education or erudition, we might say, the eloquence of your speech. And they would measure people spiritually by those kinds of external factors. When we come to chapter 8, we'll see that it's all about knowledge. And he says, knowledge they have that puffs them up, this theological acumen that they would go around and they would boast about all of the theology that they knew. This is the way they measured one another on those kinds of things. Come over to chapter 12 and it's about your exuberance in worship. You come over, you're looking at chapter 11. It might be about your wealth and your position and status. And they gave favoritism at the Lord's table. They had all of these things that they used to measure one another and every one of them were false standards. Well, this is just one of them we're looking at here. This false standard of spirituality. They were measuring one another by this supposed level of spirituality. The problem was, like every other man-made measurement, it was powerless to address the real problem. That is to say... You can make all these vows, you can make all these commitments, you can, you can promise yourself you're going to abstain from this or that. But here in Corinth, Paul had to write almost half a chapter in, in 1 Corinthians 6 because there was such a problem with sexual immorality, even among this group, who had set up this this vow of abstinence in their minds, and yet it had nothing, no way to address the raging desires of their heart. Or even as you come into chapter 7, this, this crazy man-made standard that they have was causing other problems. There was dysfunction in their relationships. They weren't, uh, they weren't uh, giving each other their marital rights and giving themselves to one another within the marriage bed. Or later on down the chapter, there were some people who were apparently using this as justification for divorce. Or there were some people who were trying to maintain a singleness while they were constantly battling sexual temptation. And so this this sort of man-made standard was causing all kinds of problems in their lives. So Paul writes this chapter to address some of this, to recalibrate their thinking to help them to understand what God really desires, to help them re-measure themselves according to what God really wants, redefine spirituality, and he cuts through all the fog and basically reorients them to this. If you're married, honor God in your marriage. 
you're single, you honor God in your singleness. Even if you find yourself in the tragic position of having been abandoned, of having been divorced, he's telling them that even in the midst of that, God can honor it. God can honor it. All that external stuff, the way that people are going to judge you, doesn't matter. All that matters is that you acquit yourself before the Lord in the position He's placed you in. As a matter of fact, this is sort of the theme verse we looked at in verse 17. The verse that sort of governs the entire chapter. He says, Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. And it's fairly easy to determine that that is the theme of the chapter, and more importantly, that it's the theme of verses 17 through 24, because he says it over and over again. You just read through this section, he begins by saying that, let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him, to which God's called him. Verse 18, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him seek not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Then he repeats the principle a second time. Let each one remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a a bondservant, a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called of the Lord, in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants or slaves of men. And then one more time, the third time, verse 24. So brothers, in whatever condition... Each one was called. There, let him remain with God. This is a great way to study the Bible. You know, when you, when you open up the Bible and you're reading a paragraph or you're reading a chapter or if you're reading an entire book, this would be one of the first things that you ought to be looking for, those things that are repeated. I mean, if you really want to know what it's all about, if you really want to get a proper interpretation, this is the first thing you look for. You look for those things that are repeated. And this makes it very clear to us what really Paul's trying to communicate here. He's trying to get them to understand this, that God in his sovereignty has assigned to each person the circumstances that they're in. He's assigned you within the circumstances you find yourself and you need to find a way to glorify him in that. And so, as he's been saying, marriage is useful. Singleness is useful. Even abandonment is useful. And then here in verses 17 through 24, he even adds a few more categories for us. Not just married and singleness, not just divorced even, but even circumcised or slavery. That may seem strange to you. I don't know. It was to me reading through this chapter. And I mean, I was reading through verse 16, and very clearly it's about marriage, singleness, and divorce. And then you keep reading, and in verse 25, down to the end of the chapter, very clearly about marriage and singleness. But here in the middle of this chapter, 
Paul brings up the issue of circumcision and the issue of slavery. And so I'm just reading this over and over again the last uh, few weeks, and I'm just thinking, well, what in the world is that about? Where, where does circumcision, where does slavery fit into this entire thing? Where does that come from? Well, just like he says at the end of verse 17, this is simply an example of the kinds of things he teaches in all the churches. That's what he says there in the verse 17. This is what I teach in all the churches. This is an example of the kinds of ways that I teach people to measure their spirituality. This is the kind of way that I teach people to calibrate themselves as they measure themselves spiritually. This is the way I teach them to calibrate their thinking. Now, let's just look at some of the ways that he summarizes for us here. I think he gives us basically two principles on, on how we can learn to serve God wherever we are planted. First one, in verses 18 through 19, is we need to learn to serve God regardless of religious expectations. Serve God regardless of religious expectations. And that's really what Paul's doing here. When he he says, look, this is what I teach in all the churches, what he's trying to do is take this for a moment out of the realm of these particular issues of marriage and singleness, or honestly, whatever strange issue may have corrupted your thinking or the thinking of your group, whatever kind of man-made standard might have been set up, he's trying to recalibrate us and, and reform our thinking into what God has designed. So he takes it out of the realm of some hyper view of sexual abstinence, and he takes up the issue of circumcision. And he says, first of all, look, if you were called while you were circumcised, don't try to remove the marks of circumcision. And literally, there were people who tried to do this. There were some young Jewish men who, whenever they would enter into Greek and Roman society and they wanted to be accepted, they would literally go and have a surgical procedure. And Paul actually uses the Greek word in this passage in reference to this particular procedure because there were in that society public bathhouses and public gymnasiums where men would often disrobe in the presence of one another for whatever they were doing and there would be shame, there would be ridicule on the part of Jews when they were in the presence of Romans and Greeks. So literally, there's some people that would do that because of their insecurities or because of whatever their motivations were, they would try to to remove the marks of circumcision. But by far, the bigger issue that Paul normally dealt with was just the opposite. It wasn't social concern. It was religious. It was the pressure by legalistic Jews on Gentile believers who had been born and raised uncircumcised, the pressure that somehow they needed to be circumcised to be pleasing to God. It was this religious expectation, in other words, on all the churches where Paul ministered. This idea that somehow by going out and doing something external... By doing something to your body, by doing some little ceremony or surgical uh, procedure, that somehow they would secure 
God's favor. That was what it was really all about. Paul, of course, vigorously battled this in every case, and his message was always the same, exactly what he spells out in verse 19 right here. Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. He says, look, circumcision counts for nothing. For that matter, uncircumcision counts for nothing. It doesn't add anything. It doesn't make you anything. It doesn't give you any more value before God. It doesn't secure God's love. It doesn't earn you anything. Whatever your religious expectation, you can just take circumcision out of that and you can put in whatever people try to impose on you. If they want to impose a certain way that you dress, if they want to impose a certain way that you sing, if they want to impose a certain thing that you eat, whatever it is, Paul is saying it adds nothing, you understand? Nothing to secure God's favor and to secure God's blessing. He's trying to recalibrate your thinking. Don't conform to the expectations of these men. Your position before God is secured not by anything you do, but by Christ been established by the sacrifice of Christ. His sacrifice on the cross wipes away all your sin and all your guilt. And so the question is, what are you going to do that could ever add to that? What are you going to do that's going to make more complete what Christ has already completed? Paul says then it all adds nothing. Nothing. In fact, it may actually take away. This is what Paul says over in Galatians 5, verse 2. Look, he says, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, and you can just add in there all the other man-made precepts, all the other do not and do not and do not or whatever it is, you can just add it in there. He says, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So not only does it not add anything to you, worse, he says, it undermines what Christ has done for you. These people who are trying to impose all of these religious expectations on you, they are undermining the work of Christ. Not just not adding anything, they're taking away taking away the benefits of Christ, taking away the advantage of Christ, you begin to think that God's going to somehow now pour out His favor on you or withhold His favor from you based not upon what Christ has done, but upon what you do. You abandon your trust in Christ and He no longer is of any advantage to you. You put all your trust in your own actions and when you do that, Everything that Christ has done for you is gone. And now it all depends on you. That all depends on the fact that you dress the right way, sing the right way, eat the right way, walk the right way. You do a certain amount of activity. You give a certain amount of money. You do all these things and now somehow that is the basis of your security. Paul says, look, if you accept that, If you accept the religious expectations of men, Christ is no longer of any advantage to you. It counts for nothing. 
What does count? Right here in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19. Paul says, keeping the commandments of God. Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Now again, if you're like me, you read that and you think, wait a second. Isn't circumcision a commandment of God? Right? And didn't we just say that it really isn't what we do that counts? It's what Christ did? I mean, what, what, is, what exactly is Paul saying here? I mean, is he contradicting himself? Is he contradicting his other theology? How can Paul say that what counts is keeping the commandments of God? Well, you have to understand the contrast that Paul normally makes when he talks about things like circumcision. If you have your Bibles, look with me over at Galatians for a moment. Chapter 5, once again, I just referenced it, but it's a good place to see, lay our own eyes on this. In verse 6 of Galatians chapter 5, you'll recognize the terminology very quickly. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Go on down to chapter 6, verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So in other words, when Paul is saying that circumcision doesn't count for anything, uncircumcision doesn't count for anything, but keeping the commandments of God... His emphasis isn't on necessarily what you do, but who you're following. In other words, the contrast is not on the keeping and the not keeping. The contrast is on the commandments of men versus the commandments of God. And in case you doubt that, just look back at 1 Corinthians 7. You can see very clearly where he goes in the context. Because you look down at verse 23, and what does he say at the end of his discussion about slaves? He says, you were bought with a price, do not become the slaves of men. He says this is really his concern. He does not want you to enslave yourself to men. He doesn't want you to put yourself under the burden of the commandments of men. What he's contrasting is the commandments of God versus the commandments of men. And just like he says in all the other places where he says circumcision doesn't count for anything, he's saying that whenever you are placing your trust in Christ, there is going to be an evidence that comes out of that, an evidence of faith working through love, an evidence of a new creation in Christ. But the evidence is going to be that no matter what situation you're in, you're going to want to please and honor God above everything else. That's the contrast. And really, in this situation, he says, you're not going to be so concerned about circumcision and all that other stuff. You're going to be concerned about what God wants. You're going to be wanting to do His will. And His will isn't necessarily expressed in circumcision or any number of Old Testament laws that people try to impose. We'll talk about this in a few weeks when we come to chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. And Paul says in one verse, I'm no longer under the law. And the next verse, he says, I'm under the law. Because he's talking about the law of Christ. 
In other words, there still are things that God demands of you. There still are commandments. There still are things that you need to obey. They're just not all these imposed laws from the Old Testament. So Paul says, this is what he's saying. You need to have a heart that is focused on serving God, not men. Regardless of their religious expectations. They come to you and say, you know, you're more spiritual if you're single. You know, you're more spiritual if you can sort of rise above those natural desires for sexual activity. You know, you're more spiritual if you do this. You're more spiritual to do that. Paul says that is bogus. What you need to ask yourself isn't what other people expect of me. What you need to ask yourself is what does God expect of me? And within marriage, there are very clear expectations from God. Within singleness, there are very clear expectations of God. And that's what this is all about. Not just that, that sort of leads into a second illustration. Paul restates his main point in verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. This would be your concern is glorifying God wherever you are. And that leads him to a second illustration Really a second principle for us, which is serve God regardless of the social expectations of men. And this is really where he gets into talking about slavery. And the reason that this this comes up is because, first of all, this probably was very applicable to many of these people. We've mentioned this in the past, but in Roman society... There's a massive slave population. The best research we have indicates that about one-third of the people were slaves. About one-third of the people were what they called freedmen, that is, people who were formerly slaves. And then about one-third of the people were born free. And so when Paul writes to this congregation, many of them would have been slaves. Now, these slaves sometimes were well-educated. Sometimes they... They actually uh, experienced a sort of advancement by being a slave. Many of them served as accountants and managers. In some cases, they were teachers and even in, in some cases, doctors. And they would take these positions and yet they would still be slaves. This was much of the economic system of the day. This was the driving engine of the day, this economic a system of slavery, but even within all of these educated roles and sometimes prominent roles, slaves were still looked down upon and often ill-treated. One Roman writer speaking to the issue of parenting urges parents not to beat their children like they beat their slaves. So in other words, it's acceptable to beat your slave. Just don't do your kids like that. This is just the way it was in society. People would still deride. They would still deal unjustly with their slaves. And you see it spoken about in 1 Peter and other places like that. And yet Paul brings this principle even to them. He says, were you a bondservant? Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. That is to say... The implication of this, serve God, honor God, glorify God, even in that unjust situation. Now, particularly troubling for some of these guys, and this is maybe exactly why Paul brought this up, is because in Roman law, a slave 
was forbidden from marrying. Now, many of them would be freed. Normally, a slave would be freed by the time they were 30 years old. That's why you had such a large population of freedmen within Roman society. And this was a way that, that owners would sort of manipulate their slaves. Some people called it a, a carrot and stick approach. They would, on one hand, beat them with a stick. On the other hand, always dangle a carrot out in front of them. And the carrot that was normally dangled in front of them was the opportunity for their freedom. If they were loyal and if they were good slaves, there was always this promise that one day they would be freed. And it seems that in most cases, they were normally freed by the time they were 30. And yet as they read or they would have heard this letter from the Apostle Paul and he's talking to them about singleness and marriage, this particular advice, this particular counsel, this this instruction from the Apostle Paul might have been uh, particularly burdensome to them in their struggle because they were legally forbidden from marrying, at least during their time of slavery. And so what Paul tells them? is look, if you were called as a bondservant, serve God there in that situation. It's interesting. He doesn't tell them to overthrow the system. He doesn't advise them to lead some revolt. He doesn't tell them to seek escape. He does say here, you'll notice at the end of verse 21, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. But he's not talking about illegal escape. As a matter of fact, there was a slave who had left his master and Paul wrote back to his master in the book of Philemon and sent the slave back to him, right? Paul was not an advocate of people overthrowing the system because the gospel is not primarily about changing institutions. You hear that? The gospel is not primarily about changing institutions. It is primarily about changing people in those institutions. That's why Paul tells them that they need to bear up under the situation that they're in. It's not to say that slavery is ideal. It's not to say that slavery is something you should desire after. It's not to say that it's always just. It's not to say it's desirable. That's why Paul says, look, if your owner comes and they, they present you your, your opportunity of freedom, sure, take it. And take that as God's providence. But until that time, until that time comes, Paul says, right in the midst of your circumstances, serve God. It may be difficult. You may not be esteemed. You may be ill-treated, but you need to focus on serving God. I remember when I was in seminary, me and this other fellow student had the uh, distinguished role of snack truck driver. And uh, there may be few more humiliating positions on the face of the planet. You, you drive into the schools and, uh, you know, the kids surround you like piranhas. When you're bringing your, their snacks in, they want to see what's coming to the shelves. And then normally the snack uh, room operator is under a lot of stress and they're snapping and yelling at you and, you know, will treat you ill. And you drive around and you're in this environment all day long and then you go back and in this situation, 
We would go back and the supervisor just could never be pleased. I mean, you, every time you did something, he would find something to be wrong with and he would criticize and he would berate and he would belittle in front of everybody. And I just remember just dreading every day going to work. And then after I was finished with my route, dreading just going back to the office because I knew even if I had done everything perfectly, this guy was going to find something wrong. And it was really sad. I mean, we were trying hard, but I just remember this great dear brother that was serving with me and, you know, he never complained. He never brought it up. The guy would, the guy would even ridicule this fellow and in front of everybody, just make fun of him and even ridicule his faith and all these things. And you know what he did every day? Just came back and did his job with excellence. And every week they'd come out with these little rankings. And every week he was right on top. He was the first one. Best performance, best times, least accidents. It's what you got to do. I mean, it doesn't mean that people are going to be fair. It doesn't mean the system's going to be just. It doesn't mean people are going to esteem you. But you need to realize that wherever you are right now, God put you there. God put you there. It doesn't mean he endorses even the system. It doesn't mean he endorses the people over you. As a matter of fact, look with me over at Colossians one more time. Colossians chapter 3. Listen to what Paul says to slaves in Colossians chapter 3. In verse 22. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work Heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. You see, God has put you where you are. In the job you're in, with the people you're under, the circumstances you're in, God has put you there. And when you serve, you serve primarily Him. When you serve, you do it as unto him. As a matter of fact, look at verse 25 there in Colossians 3. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there is no partiality. You know what he's saying there? God doesn't necessarily endorse the injustice. God doesn't necessarily endorse the wickedness. He doesn't endorse the cruelty. He doesn't endorse the ungodliness of the people who might be over you or oppressing you. He doesn't endorse the family members who are giving you a rough time. He doesn't endorse the environment that you might be in. And there's going to come a day of reckoning, he says. And in that day of reckoning, there will be no partiality. You can be on the bottom of the uh, of the totem pole and the guy at the very top and he's saying both of you will be judged by God on equal basis. So don't take it because God tells you to submit in the situation you're in that somehow he endorses the injustice. But what he's saying is he has a plan. He has a purpose. He has a way to glorify himself no matter how Bad, the circumstances. God's going to bring honor to himself. He's going to bring glory to himself. And 
by taking this view of life, by taking this view of work, it brings dignity to every person and to every task. Every ditch that is dug, every pipe that's laid, every piece of machinery that's put together, every body that's healed by the hands of a doctor, every student who's taught, every person, it brings tremendous dignity because now what you are doing, you are doing as unto the Lord. And He is your master. He's placed you where you are. As a matter of fact, Paul goes on to say this in verse 22. He says, For he who is called in the Lord as a slave or as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Now, they would have understood this because whenever in Roman society, whenever you were freed from your owner, we said normally about the age of 30, this would have happened for most people. But they still, by Roman law, would have had certain obligations and they would have certain uh, duties that they were responsible to their patron, their former owner. The owner, the patron would still kind of look out for them and still help them make connections in society. But they, on the other hand, were bound by law to, in some cases, render service back to their patron, maybe a certain number of days every year. Or in some cases, they were bound to present gifts or to show honor. And in most cases, when they were buried on their tombstone, there would be listed that they were of the household of so-and-so. And there would be the name of their patron. And this was very common in Roman society. And there was, of course, as you might imagine, there was some level of dignity to be attached to some well-known patron once you achieved your freedom. Well, this is what Paul says. Look, if you were called as a slave, you have a patron. You have a person who guards you. You have a person who protects you. And he is the Lord. And he's the one to whom you owe honor and duty and service no matter what you're doing. And by the way, if you're free when you're called, he says you're a slave of Christ. They would have understood everything Paul's saying here. They would have understood that they serve Christ. Christ, no matter what people think of them, free, slave, good, bad, terrible circumstances, whether it was times of prosperity and peace or whether it was times of turmoil and trouble, they would have understood that they had a patron who was overseeing them. So the main point in verse 23, look, you were bought with a price. Don't become the slaves of men. Don't live your life constantly worried that somehow people are going to look at you and measure you based on your station in life, based on your job, based on your finances, based on your whatever it is. Don't live that way. Don't let people measure you that way. Don't let people judge you that way. 
you live your life regardless of the social expectations of people. You live your life regardless of the religious expectations of people. You live your life before God. That's what he's saying. Matter of fact, that's exactly what he says in verse 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. The word literally is beside God. God's right beside you. Get up, go to work, doesn't matter what you're doing. You're out there serving, honoring Christ, it doesn't matter what you're doing. God is on your side. And you're on His. Glorify God where He's put you. Well, let's stand together and be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for the reminder this morning of Your graciousness, of Your love and Your kindness and Your favor. Lord, we're so grateful that we have been freed from all of the pressures and all of the constraints of having to live to the expectations of men as a freedom indeed. Now, having been freed by Christ, let us never again be in bondage to a yoke of slavery. Lord, I pray that you would give us the vision to live our lives before you wherever we are, in whatever state we've been called, help us to honor you. Give us that heart, Lord. Give us that delight. Give us that vision. And we know that you'll use it for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.